All right, we are back. And in my right hand right now is Jane Mayer's Dark Money. And God, I so want to quote from this. She seems so on the ball in that Get Me Roger Stone video. And I also have a New Yorker piece in my hand by Jeffrey Tubin, who also looks good in that video. And I feel it would be really kind of my duty at this point to quote a little bit from this excellent book. Say at least a little bit about the two Mikes, Pence and Pompeo. The book concerns itself with the largely with the Coke machine and its goal of influencing politics in America. But in the preface, Jane Mayer had this to say. Despite having been elected as a populist outsider, Trump put together a transition team that was crawling with the kinds of corporate insiders he vowed to disempower. Especially prominent among them were lobbyists and political operatives who had financial ties to the Kochs. This was perhaps unexpected because the Kochs had continued to express their distaste for Trump throughout the campaign. Charles Koch called himself a libertarian. He supported open immigration and free trade, both of which benefits his vast multinational corporation. He had denounced Trump's plan to bar Muslim immigrants as monstrous and frightening, yet there were signs of rapprochement. The chair of Trump's transition team, Vice President Mike Pence, had been Charles Koch's first choice for president in 2012 and been a major recipient of Koch campaign contributions. David Koch had personally donated $300,000 to Pence's campaign in the four years before Trump chose Pence as his running mate. Pence's senior advisor in the sensitive task of managing Trump's transition to power was Mark Short, who just a few months earlier had actually run the Koch's secretive donor club, Freedom Partners. This was the same elite group whose meetings Trump had ridiculed during his campaign. Skipping ahead a couple pages, the Koch's influence reached greater heights with Trump's nomination of Mike Pompeo, a Republican congressman from Kansas, to direct the CIA. Pompeo was the single largest recipient of Koch campaign funds in Congress. The Kochs had also been investors and partners in Pompeo's business ventures prior to his entry into politics. In fact, as Burdette Loomis, a University of Kansas professor of political science, noted, the future CIA director's nickname was the congressman from Koch. Helping to guide the transition team in these fateful choices was Rebecca Mercer, the daughter of Robert Mercer, the wealthy New York hedge fund manager who outcoked the Kochs in 2014, as Bloomberg News put it, giving more money to their political club, the Kochs, than even they had. Said Jane Mayer, clearly the reports of Koch's political death in 2016 were exaggerated. While they had refrained from backing a presidential candidate, the tentacles of the Coctopus, as their sprawling political machine was known, were already encircling the Trump administration before it even had officially taken power. So, folks, it ain't all Trump. Despite the fact that the Kochs did not like him, they seemed to be very influential in his administration. We'll have more to say about that next month. And in a follow-up item that I frankly can't resist, we have the science and technology section of The Economist's current issue talking about our, one of our favorite topics, drones. To quote from The Economist, for something weighing only a few kilograms and costing less than $2,000, even for a sophisticated model, a small consumer drone can cause an awful lot of havoc. January 22nd, flights in and out of Newark Airport in New York were suspended after reports of a drone being aloft nearby. On January 8th, Heathrow, London's biggest airport, also shut down briefly because of a drone sighting. And in the busy run-up to Christmas, London's second airport, Gatwick, was closed for more than 36 hours after drones were spotted near its runway. The magazine notes that airport incursions are not the only danger posed by drones. A growing number of drone 
Encounters are being reported by airline pilots. On December 12th, a Boeing 737 belonging to Aeromexico managed to land safely in Tijuana after its nose was badly damaged in a collision which what is believed to have been a drone. Naturally, the people that make drones, the high-tech industry is saying, well, they have some apps they're going to come up with that may be able to fix this problem. For more information about anti-drone technology, we suggest that you read the article yourself. It, it may be online. I don't know. You can find it if you want to read it. We hope you do. But the part that really got me was the paragraph at the end that said, what is also true of what may seem the most obvious and simplest way to deal with drones is a, a shotgun. Some folks nevertheless think this might be worth a go. Snake River Shooting Products, a firm in Idaho, sells cartridges it says are specifically designed to knock a small drone out of the sky. But as the firm scrupulously reminds its customers, they need to use their common sense and obey all laws. One of which is that in America, a drone is considered to be an aircraft and people are not, as a rule, supposed to shoot aircraft. I'd like to serve up the counter opinion as a licensed pilot that a drone is not an aircraft. Yeah, it's in the air. Yeah, but so is a kite. All right, at this point, why don't we jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly? All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Idle Hands with the news that Pornhub, the streaming pornography service, announced a 6.3% increase in traffic from the Washington, D.C. metro area during the ongoing government shutdown. It was, on the other hand, we think, an undeniably bad week last week for ambiance with the news that KFC has launched a limited edition gravy-scented candle. The, quote, artisanal, unquote, candle supposedly replicates the, quote, familiar and evocative, unquote, aroma of KFC's signature gravy, a scent the company described as staggeringly nose-stimulating. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase staggeringly nose-stimulating, I think of, say, burning rubber or skunk. And we do have to laugh over the fact that, uh, Colonel Harmon Sanders, the founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken, who later sold out to business interests and acted as their spokesman, was evidently enraged by the fact that the company took his formula for gravy, which he said was the best thing he'd come up with, and filed it away not to be used because it was just too labor-intensive. The colonel was evidently reprimanded when he <laughs> referred to the new gravy issued by KFC as library paste. Yeah, you can say what you want about Colonel Sanders, but I always loved him for that. And it was an, an ugly week, we'd have to say, for thinking outside the box with the news that an Arizona lawmaker now wants to tax pornography and use the proceeds to help build President Trump's border wall. A bill from GOP State Representative Gail Griffith would require tech companies to install porn-blocking software on internet-connected devices, which users could then disable by paying a $20 fee to be used for wall construction. And we have a couple of Only in America items. Only in America item 
number one is this. A Pennsylvania man officially registered his pet alligator as an emotional support animal and brings him to senior centers and schools. Joy Henney says that Wally, who's about three years old and four and a half feet long, has a calming effect on kids and seniors. I got to say, if your mom and dad are in a senior center, you, you may want to check with the staff on this one. On one outing that uh, Wally took to an assisted living facility, a female resident approached Wally with caution, saying, I'm not afraid of snakes, but that thing has a lot of teeth. Don't worry, Joy reassured her. He's just like a dog. He wants to be loved and petted. It's reported that in Joy's home, Wally likes lying on a couch watching TV, particularly The Lion King, which he reportedly always watches to the end. All right. And in Only in America item number two, we have this. The American Psychology Association just joined the war on masculinity, according to Andrew Sullivan writing in nymag.com. They have issued guidelines for men and boys that effectively pathologize half of humanity. In the report, the APA asserts that traditional masculinity marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression is harmful to both men themselves and society, resulting in oppression of women and minorities and an epidemic of violence, especially if they smoke marijuana. Yes, the APA accepts the modern gender theory, said nymag.com, that men and women are not intrinsically different, that testosterone is irrelevant, and that masculinity is a social construct that can be changed for the better. Yes, said Andrew Sullivan, there are indeed issues that men today need help with, and emotional repression is, is a part of it, but telling men that masculinity itself is diseased and they need conversion therapy, in effect, will probably only drive them away. Now, Mr. Merlin has this idea. Suppose you're dealing with someone that has some degree of toxic masculinity. What if you bring in a support alligator? Yes! Here comes Amos! Moses was a Cajun. He lived by himself in the swamp. They hunted alligator for living. He just knock him in the head with a stone. We've come to the conclusion in this program, which is not exactly a revelation, that there, there appears to be in America, and I, I think every society, two sets of rules. One set of rules for most of us, and there's another set for, let's say, billionaires which I guess you may also describe as the powerful ruling elite, which I think is something that every society has. We're not optimistic that the next story is going to result in Larry Ellison having his wrist slapped, but the Department of Labor is alleging in a lawsuit against Oracle that a vast majority of the firm's hires through its college recruiting program were non-citizen visa holders from Asia. Not only did the Redwood City software titan favor hiring Asians for key departments, it favored non-citizen Asian graduates of U.S. colleges over American graduates, according to the federal government in this lawsuit. These students require work authorization to remain in the United States after graduation, said the Labor Department in a court filing. In other words, Oracle overwhelmingly hires workers dependent upon Oracle for sponsorship to remain in the United States. This preference for a workforce that is dependent upon Oracle for authorization to work lends itself to suppression of that workforce's wages. Hello? 
I guess if you can suppress enough wages and keep the difference, you can go buy the Hawaiian island of Lanai, which Larry Ellison did. Well, we'll see how that lawsuit goes. Here in the state of California, well, let's just say we here at, at this program have, have had some reason to doubt our governor, Gavin Newsom. We do hope that he does well, but we're not encouraged by this. According to Liam Dillon writing in the Los Angeles Times, in his latest effort to flex the state's muscles over home building, Gavin Newsom announced last Friday that California was suing Huntington Beach over what he said was a failure to allow enough new home building to accommodate a growing population. Having gone to medical school at UC Irvine, I'm very familiar with Huntington Beach. My girlfriend lived in Huntington Beach. I've had a chance to see over the decades what became of Huntington Beach. I'm here to tell this audience that the problem with Huntington Beach, of which there are several, is not related to its failure to build enough homes. Nevertheless, the lawsuit is accusing Huntington of defying a state law that requires cities and counties to set aside sufficient land for housing development. Gavin Newsom said the suit was needed to address rising housing costs that threaten economic growth and deepen inequality. Yes, by all means, we can't threaten economic growth. Let's put more houses and more people in Huntington Beach. Actually, I know someone who's going to be very passionate about this issue of what happened to Huntington Beach. I actually know several, and I think you need to bring them on in a future program to correct this misconception of our governor that the problem down there is they're just not building enough homes, not building them fast enough. The same article in the LA Times noted that in 2009, when former Governor Jerry Brown was the Attorney General, California intervened in a lawsuit against Pleasanton, where voters had capped the amount of housing allowed. The case ended with Pleasanton getting rid of its cap, zoning for more homes, and owing about $4 million in attorney's fees to fight the state of California. Now, if you drive on Highway 680 between here and the Bay Area, you'll probably see the fruits of Jerry Brown's efforts in the ugly-ass worker housing-type development you will see in what formerly was a beautiful valley in Pleasanton. Gavin Newsom said many cities are taking Herculean efforts to meet this crisis head-on, but some cities are refusing to do their part to address this crisis and willfully stand in violation of California law. These cities will be held to account. Now, we have a so-called housing crisis in Northern California, particularly in the Bay Area, because people like Oracle are paying people vast sums of money to come and work in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area. We were told by these same companies not so long ago that they were going to be the solution to transportation problems because people would work at home, work on their computers at home. Then the companies decided, we can squeeze more labor out of these folks if we make them come to work. So people live in Manteca, and instead of working in Manteca, they work in Sunnyvale. They don't like all that driving, so they want to live in Sunnyvale. But alas, supply and demand being what they are as economic laws, prices have gone up. Now, one would suppose that you might want to build more facilities which people could work in Manteca or Modesto or Turlock or Lathrop or Tracy. But let's face it, the quality of life just isn't quite the same in those places. If you're a well-paid techie, you want to live in Mountain View. What are we going to do about this? Well, Radio Parallax takes the view that we should point out that the tech companies that are causing this problem ought to take some steps to solve the problem. But what they're choosing to do is hire politicians and promote ballot initiatives, etc., to open the floodgates to more housing development. They want to lower the price by increasing supply, not by reducing demand. 
Reducing demand might cost them some money. But never fear, the democratic process is going to be assisted by high tech. (laughs) In fact, there's a social network now that's fostering the online housing debate. Piece in the East Bay Times by Marissa Kendall suggests that you be welcome to the new hotbed of the Bay Area's raging housing debate, the locally known social network Next Door. Now, if you're somewhat skeptical that a social network <laughs> run by tech companies is going to support the critics of this idea of, you know, Yimby, yes, in my backyard, a group financed by tech titans and real estate interests, if you're skeptical, that the opposition is going to get a fair hearing, well, then you'd be like me. The article quotes Bob Cushman, described as the leader of a slow-growth group, Foster City Residents for Responsible Development, as saying that, quote, unfortunately, next door has not worked out to be a very satisfactory tool either for people who are pro-housing or people who want to set up a breather from housing. Cushman was active on next door until he got kicked off several months ago over accusations he was using the site to campaign. I wonder if you were campaigning for growth, whether you'd be kicked off. I don't know. I, I expect they'd maybe go easier on you. I don't know. Just a guess on my part. I just would summarize this by noting that a problem caused by tech industries is probably not likely to be eased by a social network run by tech industries. That's just my guess. Here's a part about the article that I do like the most. This is not the first time that Nextdoor has had to solve behavioral problems on its platform, people arguing vehemently. News outlets in 2015 reported that members used the site to racially profile their neighbors, and in response, Nextdoor began prompting people who reported suspicious activity to add more information than just the suspect's race. Now, it it does seem clear enough that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and other people running apps like WhatsApp, I guess, which is part of Facebook, I, I don't know, I can't keep track of who's who. They have certainly agreed that in principle, they want to take steps to reform their sites. Which reminds me of what the Iron Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, once said, which was that if somebody tells you that he agrees with you in principle, you can be pretty sure that they're not in fact going to agree with you in practice. Now in wake of the growing realization that the Trump presidency and Brexit both owe a great deal of their success to social media, apparently a pretty interesting show on HBO titled Brexit wherein Benedict Cumberbatch, great actor, takes on the role of Dominic Cummings, who eked out that narrow, unexpected victory by stroking racial resentments and using social media to stir up groups of potential voters that no one had targeted before. We have a friend of a friend of this program who uh, is from Ireland and has a rather salty perspective on the idea of having new customs facilities to set up in Northern Ireland. So if you travel from the North to the South, you know, you're going from the European Union to the non-European Union. I hope we can get him on. He's going to be fun. We're also a little bit nervous about the fact that uh, Silicon Valley is now, well, I don't know, has it been captured or vice versa by Wall Street? Everyone seemed to be running around with their hair on fire with the news that uh, Apple, uh, Apple stock wasn't up the way people had hoped. Their income wasn't what people expected. Oh my God. Call 911. You know what scares me is that I might say something like that in, in a joking fashion. And if someone's got a smartphone in the room, this program may get an ambulance sent out. Anyway, The Economist uh, decided to weigh in on this issue of, you know, of Apple stock. And they said in their headline, bad news for Apple, good news for humanity. Their subheadline said that the maturing of the smartphone industry should be celebrated, not lamented. The piece notes that people have voted with their wallets to make the smartphone the most successful consumer product in history. 
nearly 4 billion of the 5.5 billion adults on the planet now have one. And no wonder, said the article, they connect billions of people to the Internet's plethora of information and services. Phones make markets more efficient, compensate for poor infrastructure in developing countries, and and boost growth. Yet they can be used for wasting time and spreading disinformation. But they say the good outweighs the bad. They might be the most effective tool of development in existence. The Economist thinks that the slowdown in Apple does not reflect disenchantment. Quite the contrary. It's the result of market saturation. After a decade of rapid adoption, there's much less scope to sell handsets to the first-time buyers as there are so few of them left. That hit Apple the hardest because despite a relatively small market share, 13% of smartphones, it captures almost all of the industry's profits. But they say Apple's pain is humanity's gain. All right, let's move sideways into something we've been complaining about in this program for years, worried about on this program for years, media consolidation. A very small number of corporations control an awful lot of the information flowing around the world. The business column of the week notes that the Gannett newspaper chain was the most voracious acquirer of local papers in the news business. Writing in Bloomberg.com, they note that the hunter has become the hunted. The hedge fund, Alden Global Capital, a couple weeks back, offered $1.4 billion to buy Gannett, which publishes USA Today and dozens of other newspapers across the country, including the Arizona Republic, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the Cincinnati Inquirer, etc. Alden's subsidiary, Digital First Media, already has a growing roster of papers, including the Denver Post and the Orange County Register, and a notorious record of decimating newsrooms. Alden believes that the future of newspapers lies in consolidation and the cost cuts that it enables. That strategy of buying and cutting is exactly the one that Gannett pursued as it grew into the biggest newspaper owner in the country. Alden is following Gannett's own logic, taken to its furthest extreme. So far, wherever Digital First has gone, a bevy of job cuts has followed. Writing in the Long Beach Post, Tim Grobody said if Alden succeeds in its bid, it will be a waking nightmare for anyone who cares about newspapers. A vulture capital scavenger firm, in quotes, the hedge fund takes a simple approach. It acquires struggling papers and wrenches every last suffering dollar out of them through layoffs and cutbacks until all that's left is a ghost of a newspaper that once faithfully covered its community's politics, schools, sports, and events. It has done so in California, where the once-proud San Jose Mercury News is a shadow of its former self. That last is one I can vouch for. I have a friend who lives in the San Jose Mercury region who um, is very high on tech. He expressed great surprise to me a few years ago when it turned out that electronic health records did not solve all the problems in medicine, like people had promised that it would. This prompts me to want to devote two or three minutes to the article appearing in The New Yorker titled The Upgrade by Atul Gawande, last November 12th. The article describes how 90% of American hospitals have been computerized during the past decade. The author reports that three years after he was first shown how to interface with this electronic health record technology, said, I've come to feel that a system that promised to increase my mastery over my work has instead increased my work's mastery over me, and I'm not the only one. In 2016, a study found that physicians spent about two hours doing computer work for every hour spent face-to-face with a patient, whatever the brand of medical software. 
In the examination room, physicians devoted half of their patients' time facing the screen to do electronic tasks. The result? Epidemic levels of burnout among clinicians. 40% screen positive for depression. 7% report suicidal thinking, almost double the rate of the general working population. Here's the part that really blew my mind. The organization he worked for lost $1.6 billion in their conversion to this software, noting that the software costs were under $100 million. The bulk of that expense came from lost patient revenues and all the tech support personnel and other people needed during the implementation phase. I'll have more to say about this in the future. As a wrapping up, let's salute John Bogle, shall we? He passed away last week and was the founder of the Vanguard Group, which in 1975 began to sell index funds. Bogle realized that few stock pickers could outperform the market, averages in the long term, so his solution was buy everything. You then do what the market does. Vanguard became a market giant. It's now the world's second largest fund manager with $4.9 trillion in assets. These days, index funds represent 50% of all mutual fund assets. Vanguard made Bogle an $80 million fortune. Million. His belief that as much money as possible should go to investors' accounts meant his wealth was dwarfed by his peers. The chairman of Fidelity Investments, for example, is worth $15 billion. My only regret about money, said John Bogle, who regularly donated half his salary to charity, is that I don't have more to give away. That's a guy we want to salute. All right, we start out with a good news item. Let's close today's show with another. That'll be our policy in the future. Here's what I think is a good news item from the News and Technology section of New Scientist magazine. Article by Leah Crane notes that if humans ever settle on Mars, they will need water. She notes that luckily we know how to drill ice for water. Such methods are already used in Antarctica. Researchers now think they could get them to work on the red planet also. The atmosphere of Mars is too dry to make extracting water vapor from it feasible. And some are thinking that earlier signs of surface water may now just be sand slides. I don't agree with that, but anyway, there's not a lot of surface water on Mars, but there's ice everywhere. If we need water, drill a hole, melt the ice, you're done. Apparently, the U.S. Army in the 1960s developed a technology called the Rodriguez Well, or Rod Well, for their army camps in Greenland. You drill into the ice, you melt it, you pump the water up. By supplying heat continuously, you create a reservoir and a steady water supply. In fact, studies by the Aerospace Corporation in Texas showed that, in fact, simulations by the Aerospace Corporation in Texas estimated that they might be able to derive oh, something like 300 liter 380 liters of water a day using 9 kilowatts of power to melt ice. This is 10 times what each astronaut on the International Space Station uses daily and close to the average daily water use per person in the U.S. So future astronauts, take note. You might be able to go to Mars and still enjoy a hot bath. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath Long about a Saturday night this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Buzz Aldrin. We'll see you next week. Well, I was out and know there was a party going on. There was a suspicion and a splash. Reeling with the feeling, moving and a groove and rocking and a